if the public is shown that repeatedly and consistently scientists were holding back the facts from them, whether it was because scientists were afraid they would panic the public or whether scientists were trying to protect their own interests, that would completely break the trust between non-scientists and, and scientists. And it, it also drags in science writers and science journalists and journalists who have been just regurgitating everything that scientists have told them. I'm Miriam Hoffman, a full-time college student living in Carbondale, Illinois, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, I interview Alina Chan, who is the co-author with Matt Ridley on a wild new book called Viral on the origins of the COVID-2 COVID virus. This is a crazy thriller of a book. I picked it up because Matt Ridley, who's been a guest on the show a couple of times, wrote it. And I thought, man, if Matt put this out, if he decided to drop everything he was doing and put a book out on something that is in the news right now, it's got to be good. And um, man, as soon as I started listening to that book, I was completely hooked. It is written in such a compelling way. And it's really on a subject that we all lived through. But there was so much about coronavirus that we just didn't pick up on because we were in the middle of it and we couldn't see the wider picture. And so you get to understand why is the virus as bad as it is. You get to see into how it spread, what we thought things were going on and how it all morphed out. It is an incredible book. And I was hugely honored to have Alina Chan come on and talk all about her experience of getting involved with this book, writing it, what did she discover, the craziness that's gone on with the Eco Health Alliance and Peter Daszak, but also what this means for a world in which it's really likely that the virus spilled out from a lab in Wuhan, China. This is a phenomenal interview, and I'm so glad you're here. Before we get there, we are heading into the holiday season, and if you've been thinking about doing a legacy interview for one of your friends, loved ones, parents, or yourself, I encourage you to do it. For anybody that doesn't know, a legacy interview is where I sit down and do a private interview with you or a loved one to talk about your family values, to talk about your history, your stories, things that you want preserved in a sort of time capsule. We'll have a few general questions that you'll know I'll ask. But once we start the conversation, just like this podcast, we don't know where things will go. I'll explore the hidden nooks and crannies. Just last week, I did a couple that were 85 years old. They'd been married for over, I think, 60 years. And they have a huge family with dozens and dozens of grandkids. And we had a phenomenal conversation talking everything about the loss of children to, um, the experience of raising their family within a church, different uh, experiences that change their marriage and their lives, what they thought was important, and to laughing and telling great stories that they wanted to make sure were captured for their great, great, great grandchildren. So if you're interested in doing this, go to store.articulate.ventures and sign up to do one of these interviews before the holiday season. All right, without further ado, we're going to go to the delightful Alina Chan author of the brand new book, Viral. Alina Chan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on the show. So I'm delighted to have you. You are a co-author with one of my favorite people in the whole world, Matt Ridley. And uh, I just finished reading your book about the origin of uh, the coronavirus, and I was stunned throughout the entire thing. It read like a crime thriller. And more than anything, it was an experience of I lived through coronavirus, and yet 
there is so much about the disease and where it came from and why it's so dangerous and why do we think what you know why is it so important that we find out where it came from that I just never thought of so I am delighted that you were willing and able to come on the podcast today so to start off um how did you get involved with writing a book with Matt Ridley about coronavirus so Matt and I first connected in mid-2020. This was after I had put out my preprint on whether the virus was well adapted to humans. Uh, and Matt was writing a piece for the Wall Street Journal. So he saw my preprint and we started talking to each other via email. And half a year later, so by late 2020, he decided that he wanted to write this book on the origin of COVID-19. And he wanted me to join him as a co-author. So I was really stunned by that offer because I, I'm nobody. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Broad, but I'm not a science writer. And so I, I took many months to deliberate on this decision because it would have um, fairly life-changing effects for me, being more uh, trust into the public uh, light on this topic, which is a very controversial, sometimes dangerous topic to talk about for scientists. Um, and by May, of this year, 2021, we decided, yes, let's do it. So we signed the deal and we worked furiously on this book, literally 24 seven, because uh, he's five hours ahead of me. So I would finish a draft, <laughs> send it to him and back and forth just day and night until we got the book uh, sent up to the press in September. And so when you're thinking about writing this book, you say it's a little bit dangerous. It's going to thrust you into the public light. For people that aren't scientists, why why do you say this? Like, you know, it's just writing a book. So the, the topic is is extremely polarizing. It's, it's possibly one of the most important questions of our lifetimes and has huge consequences depending on what the answer is. Where did this virus come from? So if it came from nature, from the wildlife trade, I feel like a lot of people would heave a huge sigh of relief because it's just the same old thing happening again and again. But if it came from a lab, from research activities, then then everything has to change because now there's a new type of risk, a new type of pandemic risk that we have to mitigate. And, and suddenly the scientific community might find themselves um, in a position where they have to be more transparent, uh, be, do their research more safely and be accountable. So finding the answer, where did this virus come from, uh, can prevent future pandemics, but it also uh, makes it so that a lot of actions have to be taken. So why is it not obvious where the where the virus came from? It seems like every other virus that's been out there, we're like, Matt, we found the the culprit animal and we know where it's at. But this one, we, why is it that we don't know? So right now, you're right, there's no definitive evidence for either a natural or lab origin. Uh, there have been efforts made to look for the intermediate host, the proximal animal source of this virus, the original animal uh, population that gave this virus to humans. But almost two years since this virus has emerged in Wuhan, there's been no trace of this animal. So they cannot find a proximal animal source of the virus. Um, on the other hand, for the lab origin, this virus emerged in a city where the lab doing this exact type of research, collecting all of these diverse SARS-like viruses, making novel and sometimes dangerous genetic modifications to them, was based in this city. So despite this huge coincidence, that hypothesis has not been properly investigated. The, the extent of the investigation was just asking the scientists that, did you leak this from your lab? And of course, they said no. So, um, that, yeah, so it, we're, we're at this situation where what we need now is a systematic investigation. There are still many routes 
that can be investigated. So we're not at the hopeless dead end yet. So when uh, COVID first hit, you know, and all of a sudden I went from being on the road all the time to being um, in my house, I started running the podcast all the time. And Matt, actually, Matt Ridley was one of the first people we had on to talk about COVID. And I remember very clearly he he was talking about, like, why are they eating all these exotic animals where, you know, they have all this interaction with bats. And uh, I remember it being a rather profound experience when... um, uh, when I started hearing Matt explore the idea that it might be a lab leak, because this was one of those things that if you even put this out into the world, that you thought this came from a lab, you were xenophobic, you you somehow didn't like the Chinese, you were being unfair, you were being a conspiracy theorist. What what changed his mind, your mind to, to saying like, hey, this is something we really need to dig deeper into? I think for a lot of experts, scientists and journalists, like the turning point was the joint China WHO investigation. So the World Health Organization had begged China for about a year to please let them come in and take a look. So in January of 2021, they finally got to go in. Um, And when they came out, they tried to tell people that a lab leak was extremely unlikely. But yet they said that it was possible, more likely that this virus had emerged from a block of frozen meat imported across borders or something into China. So when people saw that, they, they realized that one, no no investigation was properly done, so they had no access to the data, but that they were also heavily influenced by the Chinese half of the team, which were trying to push a, a narrative that this virus had not originated in China. And so I think it was extremely concerning, and and that's when a lot of scientists really stepped up and wrote open letters, uh, uh, published in the Wall Street Journal, published in Science Magazine, asking for a proper investigation of both natural and lab-based origins. So let's actually um, talk a little bit. One of the most interesting parts of your book to me was explaining why COVID was so much more dangerous than other things. Like, can you talk about just, you know, because when we've been living with it for so long, I think people just think like, ah, it's dangerous. It's more dangerous. I don't really know why. What makes COVID a different sort of disease than what we've seen before? So this virus is extremely stealthy and tricky to contain. Um, and other scientists have brought this up too. Trying, trying to shut this thing down, trying to eradicate it has become near impossible now. Because the first thing is that it can spread before someone even has symptoms. So how, how do you even try to contain something like this where someone could just be asymptomatically spreading the virus to everyone around them? Uh, and the second thing is that it has extremely long incubation time of up to two weeks. So for SARS-1, there was much less. It was like within, within a week, you should develop symptoms. But for SARS-2, you can just be walking around the streets, taking international flights <laughs> without any symptoms for two weeks. And then suddenly you start a super spreader event somewhere at a wedding or a funeral or something. So it's extremely hard to contain. Um, and we have seen how successful it is. It's infected now at least <laughs> 250 million people. And so it's been given plenty of oxygen, uh, plenty of opportunity to mutate and uh, evolve to to handle human pre-existing immunity. So even though you've been infected by COVID before, you can get reinfected again and again by emerging variants over time. So at this point, it's just near impossible to eradicate. Like there's, there's no way. And when it gets inside of you, the the there was a part about the book, you were talking about the ACE inhibitor and how somehow this is what regulates blood pressure, which is why young people have not had that big of a problem with it. But for older people or for people that have comorbidities, this causes major issues. Can you remind me what, what part of the book that was in? 
Yes, so it should be in chapter two, if I'm not wrong, <laughs> about the viruses. So we talk about how SARS-1 and SARS-2 both use the same entry receptor. So they bind to this protein called uh, human ACE2. It's, it's expressed on different cells in your body. And it's expressed really prolifically all over your body, uh, even in your muscle cells, in your, in your uh, blood vessels. And so when the virus sees this protein sticking on cells, it latches on and it recognizes it and enters your cell and infects you. But SARS-2 also has this very unique feature called the furin cleavage site, which is also in its spike that latches onto the ACE2 receptor. So this furin cleavage site gives it a lot of novel properties compared to SARS-1. And, and so a lot of scientists who've studied this furin cleavage site, they say that without this feature, SARS-2 would not be a pandemic virus. And it's precisely this feature that makes, that is extremely controversial. A lot of scientists, even top virologists, are undecided whether or not it's natural or whether it was inserted into the virus in a lab. So let's talk about a furin cleavage site. What does that mean? Why is that so rare? And you know, why does this single feature say uh, this? This means it's not really natural. So amongst all of the SARS-like viruses we've seen to date, SARS-CoV-2 is the only virus with this furin cleavage site insertion in the spike. And so the advantage it confers is that it makes the virus much more infectious. So it, uh, it primes the spike for binding onto uh, the human ACE2 receptor, but it also allows it to uh, fuse with other cells much more quickly. So when you've infected one cell and it fuses with all the surrounding cells, you create these uh, abnormal structures in your body. And that's part of, the, part of the danger of the disease is that it there's so much fusing of your cells that all the fine structure is gone. So for example, in your lung, all of that fine structure is gone. So, and that's why a lot of people have huge respiratory uh, failure or um, it does the same thing in your heart. And so a lot of people with underlying diseases and uh, with heart disease, for example, they, they are more susceptible to COVID-19 severe outcomes. Um, and so this, this feature is unique to SARS-CoV-2 amongst all SARS-like viruses. And there are furin cleavage sites at a similar position in distantly related coronaviruses, but till today, <laughs> SARS-CoV-2 is the only one within its family. And so uh, it is possible that it emerged naturally. It's completely possible, but we have not seen any evidence of that. Uh, but it's also possible that it emerged in a lab because in the years leading up to the pandemic, scientists working with these viruses had started to started a trend of inserting these features directly into the spikes of novel coronaviruses they picked up in the wild. So both hypotheses are on the table. So you brought up the lab part again, which is when when the story goes from like, ah, oh, this is an interesting virus to being like a crime thriller, is that uh, you don't really think that it's a um, biological weapon. You don't think people were sitting there tinkering away, trying to release this into the into the environment to harm people. What is your hypothesis? What, why a lab leak? And what do you think people were doing messing around with these viruses at all? So the lab leak is actually not on the completely opposite end of a natural uh, origin. So for example, for natural origin, the story usually goes is that a hapless person is exposed to an animal that's infected, whether it's a bat in a cave somewhere or whether it's a, an, a very sick animal in the wildlife trade, so in the markets or at a farm. So, but for a lab origin, there's actually a spectrum of activities that could lead to a lab escape or research-related escape. So 
it starts with even the fieldwork. So you've got, we know that there were dozens of scientists over the past more than a decade going out to all these rural and remote areas, collecting tens of thousands of samples from not just uh, animals, not just bats, uh, not just animals in the wildlife trade, but even humans. So they were specifically looking for humans living in these remote areas that were infected and collecting samples from them. So during this process, they themselves might have been exposed to a infected animal or human and then brought that infection back into a very densely populated urban center. So to clarify from your book, like mm -hmm. this is what it was like hard to wrap your mind around. These were extremely remote places. These were places yeah. where the people living in the village either never left or maybe left the village once or twice in their entire lifetime, right? They, they were yeah. living outside of a cave, um, you know, in a place where the only reason outsiders came there was to mine some obscure metal or something like that. And, uh, and there were bats living there. And so these adventurers were going out, taking tens of thousands of samples and then bringing them back to, well, a variety of labs, but in this particular case, Wuhan, right? Yes. So we know that Wuhan had become the epicenter where all of these tens of thousands of samples from high-risk animals and humans were being sent for, for several years leading up the pandemic. And so that activity itself, just the collection activity and the concentrating of it in that center could have led to a lab escape. Um, we know that they were doing this work, this research at a very low biosafety level, BSL-2 which sometimes just consists of gloves. So sometimes the researchers just handling all these samples with gloves on. And then there's no way this can protect you from a airborne virus like SARS-CoV-2. There's just no way. So other virologists who, who heard and saw the evidence that this work was being done at BSL-2, they said things like, that screwed up. <laughs> they said this should never happen at this, at this level. Um, and, and so further, further to collection though, once, once the virus is actually in the lab and you're handling the sample, uh, Virologists will grow, will try to grow the virus in the lab, or if they can't grow it in the lab, they, they can even synthesize it from scratch. So they can even clone a completely novel virus from scratch, just using the sequence without leaving any traces in there. So th these processes of making more of the virus uh, across a boutique <laughs> collection of different cell lines from bats, humans, pigs, like monkeys, this is also a risky activity, especially when you do it at BSL2. And then the, the final step above that is, is putting in features that could enhance the transmissibility or the virulence of a particular pathogen. So putting in a furine cleavage site, for example, or switching in and out uh, spikes or different genes in the virus can make it uh, capable of causing a pandemic. And this is the last one I'll say on this point is that in the last two months, all these documents have come out leaked or obtained through uh, Freedom of Information Act showing that very dangerous work was happening. So including manipulation of human pathogen MERS virus, putting in parts of Chinese MERS-like viruses into the mid Middle Eastern MERS virus. So why in the world would anybody sit in a lab and do this if they didn't have nefarious intent? If, they, if, if you didn't think like, oh, these are people, you know, twirling their mustaches and, and preparing to do, you know, bio, bio weapon war. The, the whole purpose or the mission of this work uh, was to predict and prevent future pandemics. And so what was happening was there was an international uh, consortia of, of scientists. So it, it wasn't just Chinese scientists, it was scientists in the US and Europe and other parts of Asia and China, they all agreed that they were going to build this mega database of uh, viruses called the Global Virum Project. And China wanted to be in charge of the prototype 
which was based at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So they were building their own database of novel pathogens they found in the wild. And the point of it was that if a new pandemic started, if a new outbreak were to occur, you could look at that virus's genomic data and compare it to what's in the database. And from there, fill in the picture of how dangerous this virus might be. And yet when COVID-19 was detected in Wuhan, that database was inaccessible and never made available. And uh, the partners who had contributed to this database even said, there's nothing useful in there. You, we don't need to see this database. So it's this shocking, uh, like invalidation of the purpose of the entire work. So it's, it's fascinating you bring this up because I think in the book at this point, when you start thinking about like, why is it that people are pushing these things together or now they're making this database and in comes this term that in US popular culture, we hear quite a bit, but I didn't know anything at all about it. And it's uh, Eco Health Alliance, right? So this place starts popping up. And when you get the history of this group, you find out this was like, not a group that was initially, when it was set up many, many years ago, designed to be studying this thing. It, it made a turn years ago. So tell us a little bit about the history of the EcoHealth Alliance and then how did they get involved in this you know, story about a, a, a virology lab in Wuhan, China? So the EcoHealth Alliance used to be a wildlife conservation organization, but I think that things changed once uh, Peter Dashak came into the picture. So Peter Dashak is the current president of the Equal Health Alliance. And he had been working with uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, Shi Zhengli, the PI that has called Dr. Shi Zhengli, to track the bat origin of SARS-CoV-1, of the first SARS virus. So when he uh, changed the name to Equal Health Alliance, uh, the whole mandate of that organization became finding all these viruses and building a, <laughs> building a huge database of these viruses. So it, it became a very uh, trendy, uh, kind of very postmodern uh, way of looking at wildlife con conservation, right? So, so rather than directly trying to conserve wildlife, they, they were trying to find all the viruses <laughs> in the wildlife and use that to predict uh, future outbreaks. And from there, try to inform policy about protecting wildlife. And uh, so talk about their involvement with the lab. I mean, it just seems so odd that these things would, they, an American nonprofit led by a British guy, like it's just so such a weird thing. So we, we know that this is an extremely well-funded organization and its partners are extremely well-funded too in, in China and elsewhere. So they had been given literally hundreds of millions of dollars, mostly from the US, from the Department of Defense, from the Pentagon, and, and from NIH, the NIAID, uh, Infectious Diseases Organization. So they were, I think their work was extremely glorified. Like they were consistently publishing in the top journals, in all the top scientific journals. Uh, and you can see this track record of them publishing with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Like every time they found new SARS-like viruses or things like that, they got super excited and they would publish it in a very high profile place. But the thing is, when you look at that literature, you soon realize that all of the viruses they've described to date, even, even post-pandemic, have been collected before 2016. So there's this black like box or this window of time between 2016 and 2019. We have no idea what are the new viruses they've collected and brought to the lab. 
And why does that matter? That matters because a lot of uh, natural origin proponents, so people who insist that the virus most likely came from nature, have said that uh, the genomic sequence of SARS-CoV-2 doesn't match anything we've seen in the literature. So the problem is they're not acknowledging the caveat that scientists take time to publish. So a lot of the work we published was actually done like two or three years ago, or sometimes even more. Some people save papers for a decade, if you can believe that. And so uh, knowing that there's this window of time between 2016 and 2019 that we have no insight into what viruses were collected is a huge loophole. So we need to find out, and I believe that information, some of it might sit at the Equal Health Alliance in New York. So that should be immediately investigated. What do you think is going on that uh, that the EcoHealth Alliance, um, I mean, it, from the way the book reads, and I have to admit, like, I definitely am falling for the Dunning-Kruger effect during your book. Like, as I'm listening to it, I'm, I'm like, oh my gosh, we have all the answers we need. So I, I, I'm, I try to apply some level of skepticism. But as you're reading this book, you come to the conclusion, like, here's this group, they've been um, given this mandate or millions and millions of dollars to be prepared for pandemics. The big one comes, or presumably the big one, at least one of the big ones comes. Which big and one suddenly, are they waiting for? <laughs> yeah. And now all of a sudden they're like removing data. The head of the organization, Peter Daszak, starts saying things like, ah, I looked in that file. There's nothing in there for you guys to see. We're just going to take it away. Why are they getting away with this? Like what it seems to me like there's so much social pressure on so many different things where people end up caving and there's so little social pressure here. I don't understand what's going on. Yeah. And I think that this is a point that's been uh, pressed by by very uh, expert people who are expert at calling bullshit. Right. So they've said, why are all these virologists so pissed by a, a postdoc me publishing a book? when they should be pissed about the EcoHealth Alliance not sharing all the information they had when this virus emerged. Like, why are they not like outraged that the World Health Organization was made to say that this pandemic could have started from a frozen block of meat? Like, this, these are extremely damaging to the scientific community and to public trust in science. So, um, it, it is it is a problem. And I, I, I hesitate to speculate on the motivations of, of people, but this is a problem they should be aware of. Why are they not using their voices and their expertise to call out these clear instances where very important information is being set on? Yeah. So um, in preparation for this interview, I went and listened to a few of the Peter Daszak interviews. And like, it's not like he's uh, so busy. He's like down in a lab, <laughs> you know, hacking away through things that he can't, so he you know, get to. Yeah, he he's like a, he's a fundraiser essentially, like the CEO of an organization, and uh, he when he talks on these interviews, he seems to blithely dismiss um, the questions that people have for him. And and when I actually look at the criticisms that you and Matt give um, get from um, other people, it, 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 there's like this dismissive thing of like you know it's very clearly not a lab leak. This is like um, a red herring. We should just kind of move past. And the people that think this are are um, you know trying to, to mislead. I, I don't really know what the question is other than to say like it, it, he appears to me to be like a, a, like a maddening figure in this whole thing, Al almost like a person that views himself as the hero that has taken some very serious steps towards being a, a rather uh, imposing villain. Well, I mean, he has on multiple occasions been proven to be extremely misinformed, if I can put that tactfully. So he's, he said that 
uh, inserting furin cleavage sites into novel SARS viruses was a conspiracy theory. And then two months ago, we saw documents leaked from his organization showing that they were proposing to do that in early 2018. He said that keeping bats in the lab is a conspiracy theory. And then we see patents and, and documents leaked again, showing that they were taking bats to the lab to experiment with SARS viruses. Yeah, they were that 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 one's the one that's really crazy. Like that one is the one where you're like, this appears to be a bold lie because they had a patent to start colonies inside of these labs, right? They wanted yes. to be able to like build out a facility because normally you can't domesticate bats, so you have to keep going out to these caves. So they thought, well, what the hell? Why don't we create a a, a, a system that you could colonize bats inside this lab? And by the way, we're going to patent it. And for him to be out there being like, no, we you know this this isn't true. It's seems absurd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When the patents are public material, so you can see when patents have been filed and the Wuhan Institute of Virology filed a patent in 2018 for bad breeding in the lab. So, <laughs> I mean, and, and there's just a, a whole series of this. And if you read the book, you will see just time and again, Peter Dashak saying all these things that he calls conspiracy theories. And then a few months later, you find out that they were doing it. So, <laughs> um, I, yeah, it, it's very concerning. And even even virologists who think that this virus might have come from nature have expressed concern over over Peter Dashak that, that he is um he's having a lot of these self-inflicted wound, wounds. So that's actually a perspective that was published in, in Science magazine by their chief editor, that he says that the Eco Health Alliance keeps inflicting wounds on, on themselves, but he's yeah. not calling them out for, for not being transparent. Yeah, I read that article as well, like, and and went through and read a whole bunch of them. The 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 big article, the big publications seem to definitely like give him a few digs, but then they're like, really, he's just misunderstood. People just yeah. don't understand, you know, this this poor lovey, you know, bear. And and like it, to me, so in my life of working in diplomacy and international relations at the World Bank and um, various large corporations, he seems like a figure that you see quite often, right? One that started up a project um, had really noble intents, right? If, if uh, hey, if we can figure out a way to find some new virus or find um, viruses way before they hit the human population, this is fine. But somewhere along the way, this like spins out of control. And from my read of your book, it's basically saying, hey, the the very thing that they thought they were protecting us from may be the thing that they caused. If that's true, if we end up discovering, hey, with you know irrefutable proof that it was a lab leak, what do you think happens to the world? Like, do do people in the lab become personally liable? Do do does a country end up owing trillions of dollars to the rest of the world? How does this play out? So that, that's a, exactly right. How you described it. It's so. Let's go back to late 2019 or even January 2020. They received news, the Equal Health Alliance receives news that there's a novel SARS-like virus outbreak in Wuhan. Um, what should they have done then? So if they even at all suspected it might have come from the lab, this would have terrified them. Because again, like you said, they, they were trying to prevent the pandemic, but maybe their work created this pandemic. So what, what should they do in that situation? And my argument is that in that moment, they should have said something along the lines of this. They should have said, Lab accidents happen to anybody. Even the best people have lab accidents. Let's investigate this properly. Everyone respond uh, in a way that you, you you know that this virus could have come from a wildlife market or it could have come from a lab. So that could have changed the course of the pandemic entirely. But 
For some reason, Peter Daszak went the opposite way. So he wrote a letter, he organized a letter with other extremely prominent scientists who control the funding in science internationally. And they condemned all conspiracy theorists suggesting that this virus did not have a natural origin. So instead of going with the more reasonable approach of saying that it could have been a lab accident, don't worry, let's let's figure it out. They went with, it's a conspiracy theory to suggest that a lab accident could happen and leak this virus. Yeah, and then at the, at that point, when you do that, if the if the if the conspiracy theory turns out to be true, mm-hmm. this is like you know you know yeah. like when you lie to your parents, right? The lie yeah. to your parents ends up being worse than whatever crime you were trying to get out of, um, because then it says you know we can't trust you. You don't have integrity. What does the world look like if if uh, you find the the evidence that this this irrefutably was a lab leak? What what changes about the world? That bothers me a lot. It's, as you said, it's the cover-up that's worse than the original accident because accidents happen. <laughs> so, but the, the point is that if, if the public is shown that repeatedly and consistently scientists were holding back the facts from them, whether it was because scientists were afraid they would panic the public or whether scientists were trying to protect their own interests, that would completely break the trust between non-scientists and, and scientists. And it it also drags in science writers and science journalists and journalists who have been just regurgitating everything that scientists have told them so without any critical uh, thinking, without any skepticism. So when that happens, you you feed actual conspiracy theories, you feed actual uh, rumors and then, you know, uh, really, really out there hypothesis, like the virus doesn't even exist kind of uh, narratives by people who, who have seen evidence that scientists can't be trusted. Yeah, the, I I remember when um, Matt was on the show, we um, we talked about eating bats as like just like a cultural thing that was going on, and so I tweeted out about this, and and I was talking about it on my podcast, and suddenly I was inundated with um, what appeared to be um, a you know a person saying, oh, it's not just the Chinese that eat bats, the Taiwanese eat them too, and I got all these images of like the Taiwanese president eating bats, and then I started looking at this account. And found out like this account was publishing everywhere and it appeared to me to be a a bot. So like I was like, oh, well, okay, is this the Chinese government trying to like shift the blame from, um, you know, point A, you know, them doing the wildlife market over to here. And like now with some high, what's that? They were trying to shift the blame to Taiwan. Yeah, definitely to Taiwan and and like trying to like talk about the cultural things in weird ways. But the thing that really struck me was how important it is the narrative um, that comes out within, you know, that gets implanted in people's minds, right? Like the first real story that settles in your mind then has to be unseated by something, which is why the social media sites were starting to ban anybody that talked about these things to be able to label something as a conspiracy theorist. Like you can try and push people out. You now have like a front row seat on uh, narrative building. What has this done to your worldview about what you know about the world and about what narratives are out there now that you've seen you've seen this uh, up close firsthand? Well, the first thing I'll say about that is that I've been in science and research for more than a decade. And so I, I know I look kind of young, but I have been working in labs for a long time. So I'm not under any like fairy tale illusion about, you know, the, the sainthood of, of scientists and, and editors that there is bad stuff happening in science. Like there are gatekeepers, there are people who engage in misconduct and that kind of thing. Um, but this origin of COVID situation has brought up 
some of these worst instances. So, for example, one one case where I think the narrative was really uh, made biased by gatekeeping was that in early 2020, there was just a flurry of papers and news reporters and science research uh, journals pushing the pangolin origin of this virus. Just everyone was going like pangolin nuts. Like they're just like this must have come from a pangolin. Meanwhile, there was a paper with actual data about the Wuhan market animal cells languishing behind peer review. The editor wouldn't publish it because they thought that there was no way that this this data was true because the data said no bats or pangolins were ever sold in Wuhan markets between 2017 and late 2019. So if that paper had been allowed to be published, immediately everyone would have said, then there's no pangolins in this city. Then where would they have come from? But instead, that paper languished behind peer review to June of this year. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, when 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 editors uh, are keeping data, actual data behind behind like behind bars, then then they are they are corrupting the narrative, like the information that people are receiving. So um, when we think about the proof that that would be needed to to show like, hey, this irrefutably was a lab leak or no, we know it's a zoonotic one. What would that even look like? What is proof um, now that, you know, two years have passed since since the virus began? Yeah, so looking at past coronavirus outbreaks in the 21st century, so there's no point thinking about stuff when before like sequencing was even invented. <laughs> so looking at SARS-1, for example, and, and MERS, like when these were detected, the, the scientists and the doctors involved extremely rapidly found the animal source because they could just look at the earliest cases, contact trace them and figure out the exposures. So for example, uh, SARS-1 actually broke out not once, but at least twice. Uh, and at the in early 2004, when it broke out again, one of the index patients was a waitress. And the doctors who diagnosed her said, are there civet cats, a, a, a type of animal that can transfer uh, SARS uh, viruses to, to humans? They said, are there any civet cats in your restaurant? The waitress said no, but they still went anyway. So they went to a restaurant and there were cages everywhere. And they sampled the animals, they sampled the her co-workers and immediately they found antibodies in them. They found traces of the virus in the restaurant. So that's how you collect evidence for a wildlife trait origin, for example. But in the case of SARS-2, as you said, close to two years have passed. They've searched, they've searched people there. I presume that the Chinese authorities have done contact tracing, but I'm just not sharing the data with us. They've sampled more than 80,000 animal samples, uh, tested them and all came up empty. So they, they, tested everything at that market they could find, even the surfaces, and they found zero animal samples had traces of SARS-2 on that. Because if they did have them, they would be, you know, holding them up on poster boards and showing everyone, right? Like it, it would be like, we want, we want everybody to know it wasn't our lab that did it. It, it came from this, you know, mistaken, you know, food market, right? Is your you, presumption? You think so, because that would be much less harmful version of the story. <laughs> um, and we know from, from reporting, for example, the Wall Street Journal reported that actually at the end of January 2020, uh, the Chinese scientists had already told the OIE, which is like the World Organization for Animal Health, that none of the animals sam sampled at that market tested positive for the virus. And so they, they after that, they, they kept sampling all these farms and nearby places that supplied the market and found zero still. And by May of last year, the Chinese CDC director even came out and said that seafood market where there had been a class of COVID cases was a victim and the virus had existed long before. So um, 
if it were a lab leak, do you think there's evidence that will come out for, or there could be evidence that would come out? Or do you think it's more likely that a whistleblower, somebody that, that was in the lab that just can't hold it in any longer? I mean, what, what would it take in order to be able to have the sort of evidence that would stop everyone from you know, disagreeing with you that it, was, that it really did come from a lab? So we've seen in past lab-based outbreaks, uh, including the anthrax outbreak in the Soviet Union in the 70s, and also the uh, H1N1 pandemic that also occurred in the 70s, that sometimes it takes time. There are people who know, but it's not safe for them to tell us now. So sometimes it takes even a regime change before they feel safe to come out and say, actually, here is the record that shows that this happened and, and that's why it came from the lab. Um, for the anthrax leak, it was actually just as simple as someone forgetting to replace an air filter in the vents. And because of that, the spores blew all over uh, the one side of the city and infected people. Um, and in the case of the H1N1 pandemic, it was said by a Chinese scientist who was investigating it uh, in China that it was it was most likely a vaccine trial gone wrong. So they had inoculated people with a live vaccine at the time that turned out to be still contagious and ended up causing a pandemic. So I'd say that I'm hopeful for a whistleblower, especially in this era where everything is recorded. You've got phones, like camera phones, <laughs> emails, everything can be stored somewhere on a thumb drive somewhere. Um, but at the same time, I think that there are many things we should investigate and they're even outside of China. So for example, the Eco, Eco Health Alliance that's based in New York City, they have they must have a mountain of emails and documents that they've exchanged with scientists in Wuhan, like even in the years leading up to the pandemic. Like why has that not been systematically examined? Yeah, and it's very interesting how you have gotten information from people. I, I am I was struck to hear Matt Ridley of all people talking about um, getting information from U.S. Right to Know, which in the U.S. has historically been uh, very anti-GMO and has used the FOIA requests to be able to request other guests I've had on my podcast before, right? To to be able to look into their lives, be really um, obtrusive, and and but it turns out U.S. Right to Know has found some information that at least appears on its face to uh, to be very uh, illuminating with how much um, has been blocked and how much was known beforehand. So it's been, talk a little bit about where you guys got your information, how you validated it. And I mean, like, this is really where the thriller part of the whole book comes in, because it's like information pouring in from all these like totally obscure places. Yeah. So just rewinding time to early 2020, actually most of 2020, the, the scientific consensus and the, the media consensus was that anyone suggesting a lab origin was a conspiracy theorist. So a lot of scientists were afraid to speak up in public. So I, I have gotten so many emails in private from scientists and even virologists telling me that I'm on the right track and not to stop digging and to keep finding, keep working and finding the origin of COVID-19. But they, because of fear of personal retaliation, career retaliation, they haven't come out and said it publicly. Uh, some of them even told me that they've been using anonymous accounts throughout the last year to 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 push for an investigation in the lab origin. So that's the state we were in. And so the only people who were really, you know, trying to find out the information they could from open source areas uh, and through FOIA, through the Freedom of Information Act, tended to be outsiders, tended to be anonymous sleuths, uh, a few scientists here and there who weren't in the field. Uh, because then they would be further removed from retaliation or organizations like the U.S. Right to Know, which traditionally have had a pretty like uh, anti-GMO uh, stance, I'd say, right? So uh, it, it fell to the people who had 
who still had skepticism <laughs> of a scientific consensus to, to do a real investigation. So uh, you guys were talking with people like my, my favorite character in the whole book is the seeker, right? Who's this mm-hmm. guy from India who is really good at uh, using search engines and he's able to find information that other people um, aren't. When you think about like that gathering of information, the, the internet, how did you choose who are people that are trustworthy and who are people that like, yeah, maybe they, they want it to be a lab leak maybe more than they have evidence? So it's a question of um, whether the message itself is true, right? So for me as a scientist, it, it wasn't about a messenger. I might really not like somebody or think they're not trustworthy, but you have to look at the message. If it's a Freedom of Information Act or if it's a document, a thesis or something, then that by itself is what you're evaluating because the document, I, the only question is whether it's been tampered with. That's the only thing. But other than that, who, who, who cares who came up with the document? Like, it's real. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's the thing. So actually, if some of these uh, internet sleuths and, and some of them are scientists in their own right, I have been talking with them for, for more than a year, right? So since uh, May 2020, when I put up my preprint, and actually that was where they, a lot of them met each other. So it's a, it's a strange thing. I, who knows what, what would have happened if I never made that thread on, on Twitter about my preprint? Because soon enough, underneath, all of the independent investigators found each other and started this really long conversation about where this virus could come from. And they were just posting all the evidence they could find from the internet, uh, like archived websites, archived databases, that kind of thing. And the seeker showed up and he dropped the medical thesis about the Mojang miners onto that thread. And that, that is what I think really sucked me in. So I was put on alert to this thesis, which, which described these cases in Yunnan 2012, where six miners were infected by what the thesis said was a SARS-like virus. And this drew in all these top labs around China, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology, to search for SARS-like viruses in that cave or other bad viruses. And that is where the WIV found the nine closest relatives to SARS-2 at the time that SARS-CoV-2 emerged in Wuhan. I mean, this is exactly why people should go out and and buy this book, because the stories that you're talking about, you're giving like a, you know, two minute overview, if if that. And the stories are themselves like gripping. I, I cannot imagine that this will not be turned into a movie at some point, because it like it's so compelling when you think about all these different situations that happen, people being in these obscure minds, um, the cover-ups, the, the ways that the Chinese government would be blocking reporters from trying to get to these minds once it came out. I mean, it is absolutely thrilling. Before all of this happened, before you got yourself involved with a thriller, what type of person were you? Were you the type of person that imagined you could get yourself embroiled in an international you know, pandemic uh, cover-up research book project with, uh, you know, Lord Ridley? <laughs> like, No, there's no way I could predict any of this would happen. I didn't even know I would write this book with Matt until like this year. So <laughs> um, when I put out my preprint in, in May of last year, I had no expectation of anything happening other than just sharing my preprint with people on Twitter. So it, this has been a whirlwind like experience, like just extraordinary. Uh, I... I met so many great journalists and scientists and sleuths uh, during this journey. And it's just, I, I hope they've done their stories justice in the book. 
Um, but were you were you like what type of person were you? I mean, you're clearly a good student, right? You got you're at the Broad Institute. You're doing your post um, postdoc. So, like, what what type of person were you before this? I think I'm still the same type of person, which is that I'm someone who's extremely curious. So it's mostly driven by questions that I want to get answered and determination. So when I when I think that an answer is within reach, I, I won't stop until it's found. Um, and I, I think that characteristic is also found in some of the sleuths we describe in the book, like the Seeker, Rosanna, Yuri, like uh, Francisco Diaz, uh, De Robert, especially like that, that guy is relentless. Like he, he has built this incredible like Excel sheet where he aligns all of the IDs of all the sequences that the WIV, the Wuhan Institute of Virology has found. And, and he's the one who shows that there's this window of time between 2016 and 2019. We have no idea what viruses they've found. So just it's, it, the book just tells all these stories of extreme determination <laughs> against an onslaught of people calling them racist, conspiracy theorists, that kind of thing. Like despite all this bullying from, from sometimes virologists and experts, these, these people have persisted. And so, uh, how has your life changed now? Like, uh, you're, you're now, I mean, I've gone on Twitter and seen people being critical of you and Matt in, in ways that, uh, seem, seem absurd actually, like uh, that they're not actually attacking the book. They're attacking your personalities or the way you handled things. Your life is much more public now. What else is different? Yeah. I mean, I, I see these attacks and I think Matt and I have done a really good job because if the only thing they can attack is us, then, and not actual content in the book, then we've done a really good job. <laughs> no, no misinformation in the book whatsoever. Nothing is factually incorrect. So that that's awesome. Uh, thank, I, I thank those virologists for doing that hard work of auditing our book. <laughs> and, um, I I don't know what my future will look like, but I, I just knew that this was something that had to be done. So if, if everyone is like, I need to protect my career, then then we're all just going to just let this happen, just pandemic after pandemic without showing that we can track it, that we can hold people accountable, that we can set a precedent for future pandemics. So we that absolutely is, is my first priority, is getting a real investigation going. And I'm confident that there will be one soon and not by the World Health Organization. Who do you think it will be done by? Who who could do it correctly? So there's already signs of a bipartisan uh, committee or commission being launched in the U.S. But there's also a, also a COVID commission planning group, and they want to make this very international, where they engage experts from more countries and collectively sit down and look at all the data together. But I also think it is important to keep funding independent groups of people who are investigating different aspects of the original COVID-19 so that they can be a resource to these larger commissions. So um, as you think about uh like what the future will look like in a world where a pandemic came from a lab leak or could have come from a lab leak. Um, what do you think people should be thinking about? Which, what should we be pushing politicians for? Who should we be voting for to make a, a world safer now based on the way you've seen the inside of how the world works? Yeah, it's, it's pretty uh, astonishing that where we are today with pathogen research is where we were two years ago before the pandemic. So as far as I've seen, zero measures have been taken to, to make the scientific research and publishing system robust to exploitation or to un, unintentional errors made by, by parties with 
huge conflicts of interest. So I also want to bring uh, go back to this point that you raised earlier in the in the interview is about what are the role of the virologists in, in this story, right? And so I never started from, from a point of view of them being like super villains or bad people. It's just that sometimes when you when you make a series of decisions that that cover up information, you might find yourself in a place one day where, where people have found your actions unacceptable to, to a point where maybe your initial intention even was to protect your co colleagues in China. Maybe you thought it was possibly a lab accident, but you wanted to protect them, so you covered up. But if you keep doing that for two years or more after that, to a point where people are seeing that you've withheld extremely vital information that could point to a lab origin, you, you have obliterated public trust in experts and unfortunately cut yourself as, as a untrustworthy person. Yeah, I mean, that's the story of all real good villains. There's, you know, if you have a, a villain that's just bad for the sake of being bad, that that doesn't really exist in the world. But a villain that you understand is one that started out with good intents and then, you know, stumbled down the path. Well, I uh, would highly recommend people go out and buy your book, Viral, by Alina Chan and Matt Ridley. Um, but if people wanted to support your uh, push towards getting this investigation, can you think of anything they can do? Yes, I, I think that, well, I, I think it's already on the way. So actually, some senators in the US, bipartisan, both Democrat and Republican, have requested our book to be sent to their offices. So the book is having an impact, like people are taking notice. And I think that getting information out to people uh, is very important. When there's public awareness, there's public demand for an investigation. And when there's public demand for an investigation, that's when political uh, leaders can, can push for an investigation. Um, I'd say, I'd say that right now a lot of power and influence lies with journalists. So if people can engage with journalists and let them know when, when they see them spreading misinformation or things like that, like for example, some, some journalists continue to insist today, despite the US intelligence community, despite top virologists, despite top other top journalists saying that lab leak, lab leak needs to be investigated, there are still many platforms that insist that this virus came from a market, for example, and that there's no need to investigate a lab leak. So I think that there needs to be public reaction to that. And possibly it needs to be done on social media, just, just showing that there's a wave of people who, who think that no, it's not certain that this came from market and this has huge ramifications for the future. Like no one wants to be here again in 20 years. Like maybe you have kids at the time or maybe you're in your 60s at the time. No one wants like a SARS tree or, or was like Ebola or Nipah outbreak from a city where there's a lab. Well, Alina Chan, I am uh, so grateful that you hopped on here uh, to chat about this and even more grateful that uh, you put out your preprint and then said yes to Matt to write this book. I think it was uh, really impactful to me and I would encourage people to go out and read it. So thanks for coming on. If people wanted to follow you on Twitter, where would they find you at? Oh, um, I am at A-Y-J-C-H-A-N. All right. I'll put that in the show notes. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Mance. 
Thanks for checking out this interview with Alina Chan. If you enjoyed this, you might like joining the Articulate Ventures Network. This is a small private group where we get together and talk about the podcast, but also work on projects to help us improve our lives and make ourselves the full person that we know we can be. We run a book club where just this last month we read the book Siddhartha, and we also do things like uh, speaking gyms and circular firing squads and have a Wednesday morning coffee. People that are in the network find that they can talk with other people that enjoy the podcast, but also have all sorts of interactions with other people that think a little bit like they do, but totally differently because they come from a different walk of life. So if you're interested in joining other like-minded people, I highly recommend you go to network.articulate.ventures to find out more. Thanks for watching, and we'll be back next week.